Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Our special guest today has thought a lot about failure, a fact of life that certainly resonates for the 13,000 insolvency professionals in our membership. Our guest knows, for example, that most new products fail. So do most small businesses. But why? What common threads are present? Indeed, most of us have experienced a major setback in our personal or professional lives. So what determines who will bounce back and follow up stronger than ever? If you want to succeed in business and in life, The Upside of Down is a must-read. Years in the making, it's about to be published by Viking, set for release February 11th, and its author is our special guest today. Welcome, Megan McArdle. Uh, Great to visit with you again. Thank you for having me. Megan McArdle has been one of our most popular business writers for more than a decade. She's now at Bloomberg View, writing a lively and provocative blog. Her work has appeared in Newsweek, The Economist, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Wall Street Journal, among many other outlets. She earned an MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and has an undergraduate degree from Penn, applying business acumen and street smarts to almost every topic she attacks from the continuing train wreck of the healthcare rollout to analyzing why business models succeed and fail. For the book, Megan covers the rise and fall of some of the world's top companies. Her writing challenges us to think about the causes and consequences of failure. Drawing on cutting edge research in science, psychology, economics, and business, and taking insights from turnaround experts, venture capitalists, psychologists, bankruptcy judges, and others, Megan argues that America is unique in its willingness to let people and companies fail, but also in its determination to let them pick up after the fall. Failure is how people and businesses learn. So how do you reinvent yourself when you are down? Let's discuss. So Megan, you you write that failure is perhaps the most effective path to success. And the book shows this uh, lesson through case studies of businesses. So give us an example or two, uh, perhaps uh, from the fresh start world of bankruptcy. Well, one of the the cases that I, I dive deeply into is GM and why they weren't able to uh, to get things together until they actually came to that moment of crisis, actually declared bankruptcy, reorganized and moved on. Um, and, you know, some of these things are going to be very familiar to uh, people who listen to an American Bankruptcy Institute podcast, is that, first of all, most companies, as turnaround experts will tell you, they don't call in the cavalry until things are really, really, really bad. The turnaround experts will say, you know, I never hear from anyone until they're about to miss payroll or they're about to miss a debt payment or they're about to breach a debt covenant. Um, they very rarely, people very rarely act sooner. And you, you think of this as, oh, that's stupid. But as one guy pointed out to me, you know, if you aren't that close to the line, you often just don't have the sense of urgency that you need in order to make radical change, or especially with a big organization. A big organization is like a battleship. It's really, really difficult to turn. It's also pretty hard to sink. Um, but it's, it's difficult to get that in, internal constituency to say, hey, 
something actually needs to happen. So one of the most amazing things that I discovered in the course of reporting on GM over three years was that the union was really blindsided by the fact that GM was running out of cash. And so, you know, just weeks before, they finally just figured this out, only weeks before uh, they actually had to go get an emergency infusion of cash from the federal government. And that's pretty amazing because it had been really obvious that GM was running out of cash for about a year. They were burning more, by the middle of the summer, they were burning more than a billion in cash a month. And when you consider that you know, they had a lot of cash on their balance sheet, but they didn't have infinite amounts of, of uh, cash on their balance sheet. And so, nonetheless, the union needed that level of crisis in order to actually understand that things could not go on as they had. Until that moment, what you get is internal constituencies who fight for what they've always had. And in fact, the more successful that you have been in the past, often the harder it is to change uh, because things were so good and you can't get over the idea that there has to be some way to get back to that great spot. Are companies or stakeholders, are they, are they in denial? Is that part of the reason why um, they are so late to, uh, to recognize uh, the need to um, avoid a crisis? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the problems is what economists call the sunk cost fallacy, which is that when you have taken a big loss, you are actually quite likely to kind of double down and, and expend even more trying to get what you lost back, even though it's unrecoverable, right? Once you have lost a money on a hand of blackjack, that money is gone. Even if you win the next hand, it doesn't actually bring that money back. Uh, nonetheless, people will expend a lot of resources trying to get back what they've lost. But the other problem is something uh, called normalcy bias. So, you know, one of the, another amazing fact that I learned in the course of my research is that um, a surprising number of people die in plane crashes because they just sit there. So, you know, with the smoke that comes in a plane, um, it's filled with chemicals. It's very bad for you. It's more toxic even than just a normal house fire because uh, of all the, the plastics and so forth that are on the plane. And you're in a very small space. So it's really important that as soon as a plane crashes and has come to a stop, that you get up, leave your carry-on, move to the door as quickly as possible, and get out of the plane. And yet a lot of people just sit there. There is something about, or if you look at the World Trade Center, where a large number of people just walked around um, talking to each other rather than doing what you would think was the obvious thing that everyone would have done, which is grab your stuff and go. Um, and some of those people would have lived if they had simply grabbed their bags and headed for the ground the moment the first plane hit. Um, why do we do this? It's actually, you know, it probably has some protective ability. It means that people don't scream and panic and, and trample each other whenever there's a problem. Um, but the flip side of that is that as long as there's something that we can look at that seems basically like it was, we will sit there for far too long kind of telling ourselves, oh, well, this isn't that bad, acting as if things are normal, even though you've your plane has just crashed. A plane just ran into the World Trade Center. Things very clearly have, have radically changed. Right, right. I want to go back to um, to your GM uh, illustration. I know you, you write um, a lot and are a sharp observer of the role of government uh, in business. Um, and, and obviously, the GM bankruptcy uh, brings that into sharp relief because of the government's outsized role in their planned bankruptcy, uh, the government financing 
um, um, and, and role in shepherding the case so quickly through the bankruptcy system, perhaps even, uh, one would say, favoring certain stakeholders in the case over others. Now, many bankruptcy professionals believe General Motors is an example of a rebound from failure um, and a very positive uh, development um, in in terms of you know the company is is um, you know now able to uh, you know produce their product. They're they're doing better financially. Uh, they're actually planning uh, their first uh, uh, share dividend uh, since 2008, and you know perhaps they've even heard the vice president say that uh, you know Bin Laden is dead and GM is alive. So. Uh, I know you've been critical of the role of government in other contexts. Is, is General Motors, on the other hand, a, an example of uh, the, the government um, uh, helping to create uh, success, creating uh, the upside of down, if you will? Well, the role of the government is really interesting here because I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the things that people identify as the role of government is actually the role of bankruptcy. Now, that is government, and it, the, the American bankruptcy system is fantastic. It's, I, I think, not too much of a brag to say that we have the best bankruptcy system in the world. We are the best at reorganizing companies. We're the best at reorganizing human lives, and I talk a lot about that in the book. Um, but what one absolutely the case that GM, by shedding a lot of its legacy costs by shedding an enormous amount of debt, um, by streamlining its operations, by closing dealerships, made itself into a much more competitive company. You know, the GM pre-bankruptcy was absolutely was bloated with, it had too many workers, it had huge legacy costs for its pensions and retiree health care um, that it needed to get rid of, and it had too many dealers. And bankruptcy allowed it to go through that process of cutting down to a company that could be profitable because one of the problems was that with all of these legacy costs, they needed to, to find that money somewhere, and where they found it was in taking quality out of the cars. And over 20 years, that resulted in a, a reputation for poor quality that they are now fighting to win back by producing you know, there's more insulation in the cars now. There's better quality components everywhere. And that really shows up in the quality rankings and making them a more competitive car company. So that's all to the good. Um, but, you know, that's stuff that a bankruptcy court does in a normal course of its day. That's what its job is. It goes in and it says, okay, we're going to try to reorganize this company. We're going to, you know, get creditors paid off as best we can, but we're going to try to reorganize this into a viable company, and what do we need to cut out in order to do that? Now, you can make an argument that the government was needed to provide debtor and possession financing. That's in fairness, because GM, Rick Wagoner, the CEO of GM, was absolutely convinced that they could not get uh, DIP financing. He would not even consider lining it up, and by the time they were ready to say, hey, we're going to run out of money, um, far later than they should have, frankly. It was the middle of the financial crisis. And you can argue that they wouldn't have been able to get the, I mean, they needed about $30 billion to see them through the, the reorganization. Mm-hmm. So I think they're, they're absolutely, you can make a fair argument that there was a role for the government to step in as lender of last resort there and provide a, a, a financing facility to see them through the reorganization. 
However, um, I don't think that you can make an argument that the government was needed to step in and make sure that the unions got more than a bankruptcy judge would probably have given them, decided which dealers would open and close, and, of course, rescinded, you know, looked at the network, shut them down, and then it turned out that some of them weren't powerful Congress members right. and they got reopened. Right. Um, you know, actually, those things left GM less competitive going forward. They were more generous to the unions in ways that had that made them more, frankly, they still have somewhat higher costs than their competitors. Um, they were more generous to dealers in ways that probably hurt their overall competitiveness. So, well, the government, the financing role, I think you can make a strong argument that it may have been needed. Um, what the government actually did, I don't think you can make an argument that that actually helped, going beyond just that financing role, that that actually helped GM be a, a, a stronger turnaround. If anything, they may have hurt them. Right. Right. Let's talk about your uh, lessons in the book as applied to individuals, because uh, I know that's a big part of the book. You write that failure can be the best thing that ever happened to you. Uh, so what do you mean by that? Well, the the story that I like to give, and there's a lot of actual personal personal growth stories in the book, as well as business cases and and academic research, um, because I have had a fair amount of personal experience with failure, uh, and it was that actually combined with my research on bankruptcy that led me to want to write this book. So, um, what I mean by by saying that it could be the best thing that ever happened to you is, look at me when I was I got out of business school um, in 2001. I had taken a job at a technology uh, management consulting firm that was a disastrous mistake in retrospect um, because the firm went out of business without my ever working there. They fired basically their entire associate class. Um, none of us had ever actually worked a day for the firm. Tech bubble. And so I ended up <laughs> – it, it was traumatic. I ended up back on the job market just when, you know, the second-year MBAs of the class behind me were starting to interview – and even though there, there's this terrible thing that happens with unemployment is that even though employers rationally know that you didn't do anything to deserve it, they'd still rather hire someone who, who didn't have a layoff. And so this is why you see now in the last few years no unemployed need apply. Um, and the longer that you're unemployed, the worse this goes on. So I ended up in a very bad spot. I worked down to ground zero for a year, which I'm glad I did. But by the time I was really ready to look for a job, um, I had really scarred my resume, and it took me, I was basically functionally unemployed for two years. I had money coming in because I was doing bits of work here and there. What I didn't have was a full-time job that I could put on my resume, and the end result of that um, was that I got pretty desperate, and I was living with my parents, uh, which is exactly as lame as it sounds when you're 30, and, you know, suddenly... I started. I had started this blog, and I started uh, down at Ground Zero, and I was writing about economics and public policy. And I started uh, meeting other bloggers, and I met one who worked for the Economist website, and she sent me a job listing, and I applied for it, and I got it. And this was, I mean, I actually cried when I got this job. I've never been so happy, um, except with the exception of my my wedding day. I've never cried from happiness. Um, and yet, this job paid $40,000 a year. That's, that was about a third less than I had made before I went to business school. And I had now had almost $100,000 worth of debt from going to business school. My loan payments were $1,000 a month. If it hadn't been 
for the fact that I was desperate and that I had basically completely failed to find a, a, a normal MBA job, I don't think I would have had the courage to take this job because it paid so little. It was a real struggle for a few years. Um, and it was a risk. You know, journalism is a little, feels a little riskier than, than going into management consulting. And yet it's the best thing that ever happened to me. It has been an amazing, I've now had an amazing 10 years of working as a professional journalist. I'm way better at it than I would have been as a management consultant. I'm way happier about it than I would have been as a management consultant. And so failure by clearing the decks, you know, it really is true in a sense that, as the song says, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. <laughs> that that clear, by clearing the decks, failure can open up possibilities that you never thought of. One of my favorite examples uh, which I talk about in the book, is Colonel Sanders. You know, he was not uh, someone who had a, a high and lonely destiny to make great fried chicken. In fact, for the first 40 years of his life, he was basically a failure. At one point, his wife actually left him because she was so sick of him losing yet another job. And so um, finally in his 40s, he gets it together. He gets a, has a roadside cafe that's pretty good on one of the main roads running through Kentucky, and then the state of Kentucky in the 50s builds a new throughway that bypasses his restaurant. He's no longer on the main road. He can't stay open. And so at the age of 65, he takes a pressure cooker and some chicken <laughs> on the road, starts going to, to um, conventions and trying to get restaurateurs to uh, pay him five cents a chicken to use his secret recipe. And he actually got a guy in Utah to bite, and that was the birth of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, you know, so... It really does. You clear the decks, and something new that you never thought of or intended um, can come, and it can be better than than whatever you lost. For sure. Great example. Uh, certainly, again, resonates with our members who are very familiar with using bankruptcy as that kind of uh, redemptive, uh, fresh start safety net for risk takers. Funny story. Uh, I actually wanted to call the book Fresh Start. Uh, <laughs> that was one of my suggestions for the book title. Um, but my uh, my editor said that on a bookshelf it was going to look too much like an air freshener. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Fresh Start has been uh, taken several times uh, by bankruptcy books, I know. And uh, but I, I did note that the Upside of Down is also a popular book title. I'm sure you re you recognize that. Yes, Charles Kenny, who I actually know, has a book coming out by the same title. <laughs> uh, it just came out, uh, I think it's this week or, or, la or last week. Um, and so, yes, it is a popular title, but I think it's a popular title because it, um, it really speaks to a truth that we all know but tend to forget, which is that clouds really do have silver linings. Um, and... That you know, the fresh start is just this amazing concept that American bankruptcy law came up with. It wasn't anywhere else in the world. People didn't think of bankruptcy as something for the debtor. They thought of it as something for the creditors, right? A fair way to allocate resources among the creditors when you had an insolvency. But America turned that around. Um, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will have read David Skill's Amazing History of American Bankruptcy Law. Right. Um, you know, we really turned that around and said, you know, yes, we, we want to make the creditors whole. We want to we want to be as fair to them as possible. Um, but at least as important is that bankruptcy allows us to say, okay, well, that didn't work. Let's settle the books and move on as quickly as possible and get that debtor, get that company, get that person back up and a productive member of society. And so one of the stories that I tell in the book, which um, – 
is actually about a, a Danish entrepreneur who, unfortunately, has you know he had setbacks in his business, and ten years later is still struggling with that debt um, because the Danish system is is still more oriented towards the creditor than the debtor. Right, a very good uh, a very good story. Well, that is all the time we have for today. I really hope we can hear more from you, uh, maybe even at future ABI events, uh, have you as a lunch speaker, perhaps. And I would love that. Good luck with the book rollout. And thank you again for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. You guys are really, bankruptcy was the genesis of this book. And it is, it's like one of the core end chapters. So um, I'm, I'm really pleased to talk to you guys. Great, great. The book, again, is called The Upside of Down. Uh, available uh, online and uh, from Amazon and everywhere else uh, where books are sold starting February 11th. And it's from Viking. And I encourage uh, our members to get it. And in the meantime, uh, please follow Megan on Twitter at asymmetricinfo, uh, where uh, you'll uh, read more of her lively uh, writing about uh, business and economic uh, topics. And join us again next time on ABI Podcast. Until then, this is Sam Giordano saying good day. Mm-hmm.